Welcome to Leaders and Legends of Online Learning, a podcast dedicated to the experts. Thank you for listening. Each episode, we'll be learning from the world's leading thinkers and practitioners in online learning and linking to ideas relevant to online teaching, working with online learners, and digital education. You can listen to the experts and check their profiles and link to some of their work on our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com. I'm Mark Nichols, the interviewer in this episode. You'll meet Dr. Liz Maher in this episode. Liz is an example of a lifelong learner who later became an advocate for lifelong learners. Within Liz's story is an advocacy for those who learn online and benefit from wider access to educational opportunity and the success services they benefit from. I'm talking with Dr. Liz Maher, recently retired of the Open University UK. Liz was Pro Vice-Chancellor Students following a long association with the Open University across a range of roles, including Director of Teaching in the Learning and Teaching Innovation Unit. As her student hub profile says, Liz was a mature student herself. She started studying with the Open University at the age of 28 before going on to study full-time for a degree, a master's, a doctorate and MBA. Once, of course, she realized that she could do it. There was absolutely no stopping her. Liz is a recipient of a Lifetime Achievement Award from the University's Association for Lifelong Learning and a frequent event speaker. Liz, it's great to catch up with you. Hi, Mark. Nice to catch up with you as well. Well, can we start with a brief overview of your career and publications? Okay. I'm, I'm going to probably do something a little bit unusual and go all the way back to my school days. And mm. as, a, as a teenager, I've said this before and it's on record, so I don't mind saying it again publicly. I focus much more on sex, drugs and rock and roll than I did on my formal qualification. <laughs> you know, many of us did. Many of us did, to be fair. But I always felt... I had no confidence and no belief in myself. And it was only when I started studying again, and that was with the Open University, as you say, at the age of 28, that I realized that I wasn't stupid. Mm, mm. I I don't think I'd ever thought I was stupid. I just didn't guess it. Um, And I realized that there were other ways of teaching, and that teaching that I was experiencing was so much better than what I'd experienced at school uh, and elsewhere. Mm. Um, but I'd also gone to night school and done a couple of um, classes there, and that had made a big difference as well. And I, I began to appreciate that, you know, that, that the way that you're taught in schools uh, and the way that schools manage the learning experience is not necessarily good for everybody. It might be good for some people, but not for all. And I think that was very mm. influential in my thinking in the way um, that my career went then. And I was really lucky because at that time there were still grants available in the UK, student grants. So you didn't pay fees and they actually gave you money to study. It was really good. <laughs> yeah. And so I was able to go from my initial open university experience into a face-to-face uh, polytechnic as it was then. Um, uh, later became a, a university in 1992 when the when the binary divide was removed in mm. the UK between colleges and universities. Um, but I went to study there and my eyes were opened. I just learned so much. I think possibly having been in the workplace for 10 years also made a difference because yeah. I was suddenly able to see that all the things that I was experiencing, there were other ways of thinking about them. And so that growth period, I, I guess, over that four, five, six years that I'd got back into education, I, I got the bug and I um, I got an ESRC grant for my master's, which was wonderful because I don't think I would have been able to do it otherwise. 
Um, and then I got a job. And if I'd applied, I guess if I'd have applied for that job 10 years later, even five years later, I wouldn't have got it because the shift from a requirement to just teach in higher education to being everything, to being a researcher, to being, you know, an expert in this, an administrator in that, mm. that shift would have been too great. So I was really lucky and I was lucky that I was with a, a interesting group of people in what was a department of interdisciplinary studies. And that interdisciplinarity also spoke to me very clearly because although my degree was in computing science, would you believe, don't even ask me how I got to that, no idea, but I was doing 19th century Victorian literature and I ended up doing a degree in computing science, but um, but always with that element of interdisciplinarity because I was fascinated with the way that technology is used and and the political and social and economic factors which influence the way that it develops, and that was really the subject of my of my masters, which was looking at um, an engineering organisation, an engineering company, but really about the social organisation of that rather than the uh, the management organisation of it, and and then in my PhD, um, subsequently looking at the way that. Um, technology was introduced into newspapers. And again, that started out being about technology, um, but it ended up being about power and power relations in that workplace specifically. So those things all all influenced my thinking. But I was also teaching, and I was teaching on a, a course that was primarily for mature students. And That was such an eye opener because I'd gone as a mature student myself. I had a small child. You know, so I knew what the challenges were for people to study at that level and have a small child to look after and be expected to do everything in the home and be expected to earn money. You know, it, it was all um, it was all really challenging. But I could see those experiences that that my students were having and the diversity of that student base really, really influenced me. And it was very clear to me that the background was not important. It was that curiosity um, and not having that curiosity knocked out of you somewhere along the line, Mm. but having that curiosity to want to learn and then facilitating that learning in such a way that people found that they could do it. You know, they they were people who told themselves, it's university, it's not for me, um, I'll never be able to do it. And actually persuading people that they can do it and that university is as much for the likes of them as it is for anybody else is really really critical part of my journey and and how I worked with students and I I still get you know the occasional LinkedIn message from somebody who said oh you taught me back in you know the stone age and I and I still remember you and I, I, I just think that's amazing amazing and wonderful so I developed I guess, um, my specialism, which was around widening access to higher education, which is in in the UK, in in England at least, was a very significant development in the 19, I want to say 1990s, I think. Um, It started, it did start a lot earlier than that, but but I think that was when there was money available for universities and and so they took it more seriously. (laughs) Um, And then gradually beginning to understand things like student retention, because I've heard Alan Tate talk about this, talk about the the way that the Russell Group universities, which are very selective, um, have very high retention rates, very low attrition, 
um, because they are selective. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but just having three grade A's at A-level or three A's to four A stars at A-level and going to a particular school doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to succeed in, you might succeed in higher education, but it doesn't necessarily mean that nobody else can. I think that's the way I want to, want to put it. Yeah. But because people don't have those qualifications or they don't have the background, there's an assumption that they're not going to be able to make it. And that assumption is wrong. Mm. I have seen so many students who've done poorly at school, who've done really, really well in, in higher education, as well as in governments and in big organisations. So mm. I think I, I took that route and I began to specialise in things like student retention, student support, different approaches to teaching, developing more authenticity so that the student can see themselves in what they're studying and see themselves in how they're being assessed, making it more real, if you like. Um, and, And so I experimented quite a few things in my teaching, particularly very early days of moving stuff online. Basically, you were just setting up a website for your module in the early days and thinking you were very clever for having done it. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and this was before the LMS too, was it, or, or the VLE? Yeah, 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 way before yeah. that. Most of before I was even at the Open University. This was at, you know, a face-to-face university and doing some quite interesting and exciting things with technology, but always – at the forefront wasn't, you know, oh, let's see what we can do with the technology. It was, oh, we could use the technology to support this particular approach. So I think one of the very earliest things I I did was actually try to bring together the records of student attendance, student submission, the student engagement into a single system which, you know, I'm I'm talking about nearly 30 years ago. Mm. Now people call it student analytics. In those, in those days, I thought it was just bringing together useful information that could tell me how my students were getting on. It's <laughs> so, <laughs> a good definition for analytics, actually. Yeah, yeah. We did it. We just didn't call it that. Um, I, I think that my time came when I applied for a role at the Open University, and it was Alan Tate who appointed me, in fact. Mm. Um, yeah. I didn't know Alan before then, and he was my first boss. And he appointed me to uh, something called the Centre for Widening Participation, which the university had set up in response to government agendas. Because even though the Open University, by its its uh, nominative determinism, it's open, <laughs> it mm. perfectly describes what it, what it does, but even though it was open, I think there was some, if I could be cruel, so there was some element of complacency that, oh, well, we're open, so we already do widening participation. We don't need to do anything special about it. That's what we do. But actually, when you look at the attrition rates, there's a very different story there. And I, mm. I don't want to get lost in the, the reasons why, you know, there is higher dropout rate for open universities than there are for others. I would say that for every student, there's a different reason. Yeah. So I don't think we can be as, um, as precise as to say open university students are more likely to drop out than other students. Mm. So I, I kind of helped, I think, to move the direction of the, of the thinking away from just the recruiting students with no prior qualifications to thinking more about what do we do to support those students, both in their experience of study 
and and their learning experience, but also their experience of support and the things that needed to be put in place to help students, particularly when they're not seeing each other and they're not necessarily seeing a tutor regularly. They're accessing the learning through the learning materials. And that, I guess, got me thinking a lot more about teaching and learning and about assessment. And I ended up with quite a large unit which looked after not just widening participation and our access curriculum, but also um, partnerships um, with other institutions um, nationally and internationally, from which I also learned a lot, and um, a growing interest in what is summarily called recognition of prior learning, but which actually covers a whole host of other ways of assessing learning, informal ways and non-formal ways of assessing learning in in any environment, but specifically in an open environment where one would like to think that people are more open-minded to the different kinds of learning that people will have experienced in other contexts, so in the workplace, in their volunteering, other life experiences, and how can we assess that in a higher education context and award credit for it. Mm. So how have online tools supported that or changed that over time, Liz? Because it it sounds as though the online component is actually just facilitative of the sorts of things that you would normally do anyway. What what can you tell us about the the changes there? I, I still think that it's more facilitative. I've done quite a lot of work around quality assurance, both in the UK and in Europe. And it's very clear to me that when you're looking at the quality assurance mechanisms, although you need to ensure that the students have a good and well-supported learning experience, that their outcomes are of value, it doesn't matter what the mode is. What we have are a whole range of tools, some more sophisticated than others, Mm. to create that engagement with the learner. Of course, there are wonderful things that you can do with the technology in terms of creating really immersive experiences, you know, virtual reality experiences and um, just just really nice things to play with, which are great for learning. Mm. But I would say that fundamentally, those are tools which enhance things. But if you don't have the tools, it doesn't mean you can't do it. Mm. There are some ways that you can make learning authentic even without the tools. Mm. Interesting that you mentioned Student Hub Live um, yeah. because stu- Student Hub Live was something that we introduced on, at, at the Open University a good few years ago. I was working with Belinda Tynan at the time, and um, I hope she'll forgive me for sharing this with you, but she wanted something to engage students right from the start of their experience. Mm. And she um, threw a few ideas around and then went on holiday so while she was away, I took those ideas and ran with them with, with a colleague who'd actually been doing some of this basic webcasting stuff. Yeah. And we came up with a kind of freshers event for students that are studying at a distance. And that was when Student Hub Live was born. And it was essentially live webcasting. Um, I think we broke the system the first time we tried it, but um, it, was, it was very popular and it's grown in popularity in your induction in a face-to-face institution, you probably get somebody coming along telling you about the library and telling you about, you know, the computer labs and um, 
telling you about what to expect, or, or you might not actually. <laughs> but, but what we were able to do was was to just bring that all together um, to introduce students to people that they wouldn't normally talk to. So we'd have the vice chancellor come in and be interviewed. Um, and the students would be able to ask questions directly. I don't know of any other institution where that could happen, mm, in fact, mm. for new students starting. So um, it introduced all kinds of quizzes and widgets and things like that to engage students and lots of fun things as well. So there was a, the, the kind of crazy entertaining things that you might do in a, in a freshers' week on campus. They're really good and, and a really great way of engaging people at a distance with their university and making them feel that they're a part of it. Mm. Um, because that's that feeling of engagement, that feeling of belonging, we know is really important to student success. Mm. Some students don't want it, and that's why they come to an open university, um, but some students do. And similarly, you get some students who are really keen on the technology and some students who actually don't want it. And now that it uses not just the webcasting, it has big Adobe Connect events where where student skills are developed, you know, so people can join non-curriculum specific um, sessions with lecturers or tutors who will uh, work through essay writing skills with them or work through note taking or work through, you know, the, the kinds of things that you need. Um, to study successfully and those are really popular I mean they get about 450 to 500 students for each session mm, mm. Um, which is for a study skills session is pretty impressive yeah that's excellent I, I did spend I think two or three times on the on the sofa there for, with Student Temple Live when I was at the Open University it was uh, really fascinating yeah. it's 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 good too to hear about how we can use online tools to broaden the education experience not just for within a module but to actually get a sense of that connection with the university itself which is quite a fascinating insight. What what would you what, what have you seen done well in what, using online tools? Something that's really, um, I guess, really impressed you from a teaching and learning perspective that online tools have facilitated. There, there must be a few examples there that you can you can draw on. Yeah, this isn't highly sophisticated, but one of the things that I did whilst I was pro vice chancellor for students was was to get an agreement on this sounds simple but it was really complicated <laughs> was to get an agreement on recording tutorials so mm. um and again this isn't particularly high tech but incredibly influential and impactful in the student experience so there are tutorials um which students can attend mm. um and those tutorials take place mainly face to face um but they are quite poorly attended and, and for very good reason. I mean, you, students are balancing so many things. They're balancing their um, childcare, their work, their uh, their life with their study. And actually fitting in a tutorial alongside all of that can be quite challenging. Plus, mm. it's expensive to get to places. It's difficult to get to places. So that they weren't particularly well attended. But the online tutorials were, were better. So we had a look at whether it would be possible to make recordings of those tutorials and make them available to students and it took me over a year I've got to say (laughs) you wouldn't think um to come up with a policy that was acceptable to everybody uh, in terms of making that content available to all students on on the module and say that it wasn't the technical difficulty because the technology was there 
Mm. But, but the political context of it and the social context of it was really complex. But ultimately, it was something that students felt was of value. And we know looking at the data that those recordings are watched many thousand times by students. Yeah. And I know that um, we used to record our lectures in face-to-face institutions and make those available afterwards. Not entirely sure how useful lectures are, mm-hmm. but in terms of the of the tutorial or the workshop activity, the, the getting that deeper understanding and exchanging ideas with other students is useful. Ultimately, for me, I would see trying to extract elements of those and incorporate them into the teaching materials for the module so that you're not repeating, you're not, you're not doing the same things over and over again. Yeah, you've certainly highlighted the tenacity there that you need to systematise some online learning solutions. I, I can imagine uh, a keen um, associate lecturer just doing that on, on their own bat, but to actually take it out as a, an intervention across an entire university it does take a long time to get the policy right, the systems right, the processes right, everything in place. But the powerful effect that that would have had is very significant. Yeah, because um, people who work in higher education, the academic community, their role is critique. Mm. And so not everybody is going to agree. And sometimes you have to to go for what you can get over the line because you know it's going to benefit the student experience even though not everybody's going to agree with you. Mm. Coming right back to what I said at the beginning about understanding that social, political, economic mm. context of what you're doing with the technology is crucial. You can invent things till the cows come home, but you can't get people to use them <laughs> necessarily. So your work has clearly been motivated with a keen eye on the student experience and adding value to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, Liz, um, we've strayed a little bit from the questions, which is absolutely fine. Um, the second was ideas and themes your work has provided that you sense are still pertinent today. Just lately, I've been working with Alan Tate and a couple of other colleagues from the Centre for Online and Distance Education at the University of London. In my role as PVC students, I was responsible for an assessment programme. So this was looking at ways in which we could enhance the student experience of assessment improve it and and I was very very strongly advocating a much more authentic approach and perhaps you know moving away from face-to-face exams uh, to, to much more real forms of assessment yeah and then of course uh, chat GPT emerged so everybody is talking about AI and um, particularly the challenges around AI and assessment mm. and I feel very uncomfortable with the idea that that if a student can cheat, they will cheat. That's not my experience at all. But that seems to be driving a lot of the conversation around these kind of generative AI tools. Um, so so with, with colleagues at, the, at Code, we've been looking at um, the way people envisage the impact of AI in assessment and taking an approach that looks at both heaven and hell scenarios, if you like. So, mm. um, so what would hell look like if AI was unleashed in the world of assessment? What are the things that people panic about? And there's quite a lot, and it's mainly about cheating, but also about the reputation of the university. Yeah. But then the heavenly scenarios where people see all the potential benefits of doing that in terms of learning. 
and mm. um, so how those tools can be used for learning. So, so my experience, I guess, in assessment and looking at ways in which we can improve the assessment experience of students and particularly enhance their understanding of academic integrity. There seems to be a belief that if your students are at a distance and they're studying online, they're more likely to try to cheat than, and I'm going to use that word cheat because that's the assumption. And I think it's a very unfair assumption. Yeah. If a student does sometimes make a mistake, it's very often in my experience, either because they panicked or because it was a genuine mistake and they didn't understand the, what they were doing and how to do it right. Yeah. And I think we've created this moral panic around academic integrity um, that's forced us to police the student experience rather than to think about how can we enhance learning. So I'm really passionately interested at the moment in how we can develop those tools in order to make sure that students can become part of that academic community. I heard a student actually describe academic integrity as becoming part of the academic community. And I thought that was a lovely way of thinking about it. You know, that, that as a sector, we tend to think, well, academic integrity is, so, is students plagiarised, not plagiarising, whereas they're seeing it as something quite different. Mm. Well, Liz, you've mentioned the spectre of um, ChatGPT and artificial intelligence. It's now uh, coming towards, well, close to the end of 2023, I think. What are your observations about online learning and education at the present time? What, what are the key themes that occur to you? In my experience at the Open University, we've very much focused on um, providing everything that student needs. And that's brilliant. I think that the Open University materials that are provided to students are amazing. They're the best learning experience you can have. But we do reinvent the wheel at every opportunity. So, so I think more reuse of resources, but more sharing more widely. Mm. There's a funding issue here. So I'm bringing it back into the economics. Yeah. I know it's different in different countries in the world, but in the UK, but specifically in England, the unit of resource is reducing and reducing and reducing as policy puts caps on student numbers and on how much money a university can charge. Mm. And so universities in England are increasingly looking to international student numbers just to be viable yeah. because the cost has gone up and up and up, but the resource has stayed the same for many years and will continue to stay the same. We're not necessarily going to win the battle of getting more money. So how do we make that money go further? Mm. And I think that that is where you can look at the more use of open educational resources and shared educational endeavour across the sector. Mm. I remember in the early days of online education, there was a lot of talk of um, having just one economics course that everyone draws on. <laughs> <laughs> how, how different can no. these theories be at the first year level? Though then, of course, you hit the problem of um, what you might call academic imperialism and you know, whose, whose knowledge is the truth, but we won't go into those philosophical details. <laughs> Fair enough. It does kind of lead us into the next question, though, the research you'd most like to see. So if you opened your favourite journal and found the perfect article related to online education, what would the subject be? I think it would be about retention. Um, about engaging the student. As I said before, there's a whole host of reasons why 
students drop out, not just from open universities, but from all universities. But when you look at the reasons, um, and as I said, they are many and varied, but when you look at them, then there should be some core common things that we can do that can help students. So I'd like to see something that would help us with that. We've looked and looked at things like changing the relationship between the student and their tutor. Mm. How important is that tutor? We've looked at changing the assessment, what's in the content and how to make that more inclusive um, so that students can see themselves there. I think that that actually we can only minimise it. Mm. But I don't know that it's the development in research that would make the difference. I think it's a policy thing. Mm. I think it's about how people define success. Yeah. And this isn't just about online learning or digital learning or any kind of learning. It's that success is defined in particular ways by particular actors in the sector. And in England, success is defined by our current government and our ministers and officials as a significant return to the treasury. Mm. So in other words, we're investing in you, not very much, and we're not increasing it, but we're investing in you. And we expect you then to go and get a really good job and pay lots of taxes. And that goes back into the economy. And actually, we know that there are many more benefits to higher education around health and welfare and well-being, uh, which aren't calculated in the same way. Um, And to have that very simple transactional approach to education is doing us a great disservice because it's not recognising all of the benefits that can accrue to a student. So many open university students and graduates have said to me, this has transformed my life. And that life transformation isn't necessarily about becoming the highest earner in Buckingham. It's about the ways of seeing the world, about engaging in civic society. So, so, so many benefits. Um, so I think, I think I'm, I'm very interested in policy and a lot of my work has been around policy. And again, this comes back to being mode blind. So I know the technology can give us huge advantages. Um, it's not necessarily the only answer, um, but if we're moving in that direction, more and more we need to think about the policy context to make sure that we're not doing people a disservice by restricting access. Mm, mm. So themes of um, access to education there, um, making sure that we are actually doing the utmost to make sure that students are retained, Uh, but also making sure too that we are able to measure the benefits, not just the economic ones, but the impact of a changed life. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. And, And the impact it has on your family. Yeah. Even if it's just, oh, I can now help my child with a maths homework, which I couldn't do before. Mm. Uh, so there's two people you'd recommend as leaders or legends of online learning, one whose work or perspective is significantly influencing you now, and one who you think otherwise would have an important perspective to share. What, one person that I've been working with a bit recently is a man called David Bourne, and he's a, a fellow at the Centre for Online and Distance Education and has been for some years. Um, he is what I would describe as a pedagogue and um, a very well-known one in his field. And he has spent many decades working on the development of teachers, mm-hmm. um, particularly in higher education, 
and he's done that nationally and internationally. And very sadly, he passed away um, a month or so ago. Um, but bef- when he realised that he was very ill um, and that he wasn't going to have much time left, he tried to accelerate a project, an idea that he'd been working on for some time. And it's, it, I'll, I'll summarise it with the title that he's given to the book that he was working on, Please Stop Teaching. Mm. And he's, he had come to query or, or to ask to challenge himself after a lifetime of helping people to develop teaching, models of teaching, and to develop their teaching practice and teaching experience he'd come to question whether we really understood enough about learning. And so he had been pulling together many, many ideas that he'd had over his life and to put them into a book. And he'd asked a number of of writers to contribute to that um, effort. And um, I was one of those people. uh, I'm currently hoping to help with the editing of the volume and... In the couple of months that he had, he managed to get 40,000, 50,000 words out um, on his, on his wow. theme. Yeah. And um, a lot of it is about thinking about not what we do as teachers, but what learners do in their learning experience, and then how we can make that happen better. So I think he's, he's almost questioned his own belief about what happens in educational settings he thinks that there's something else that we haven't understood very much Hmm. and and so that's something that I would like to continue to think about with the other colleagues who are working on it at the moment and to try to get that book that book out but um yeah so his thinking has been very influential for me Hmm. um and of late, even more influential. The other person, and I don't think you've interviewed her, mm. um, is uh, one of the keynote speakers from the Eden Conference in Dublin, Rika Toft Norgard. Mm. And what particularly interested me about her thinking was she, she brought in something from, I think, science fiction genre. Um, called, I don't know if you've come across it, Grimdark and Hope Punk. No. Um, I haven't come across those concepts before. Sounds fascinating, though. So it's it's Grimdark is that kind of dystopian, futuristic um, novels where where everything is awful in the world. But Hope Punk is a, a new genre where where people are succeeding through kindness and reflection and it's, it's still the goodies versus the baddies, but the goodies operating in different ways and about taking people with them. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've summarised that very, very poorly. <laughs> but she was talking about thinking about developing universities in that way mm. and it, it, almost what comes after the ruin. Um, so she calls it utopian realism. And thinking about the transformation of the university in those terms, and looking at design um, and focusing on that which is rather than that which ought to be. Mm. So without knowing what we will need, how do we create the university of the future? 
there's a lot more thinking needed around the design of a system that will bring all kinds of learners together, many diverse backgrounds in all different modes, at different levels, doing different things in different ways and bringing that together into a coherent structure for policy purposes. Yeah, yeah, that sounds absolutely fascinating. A, a newly designed university around the concept of hope punk. That's uh... Unfortunately, there's not as much been written about it as I anticipated. There's a lot in the fiction world, um, but transposing that into another context, there's not as much written about, but I do think it's really interesting. So. Mm. Well, Liz, it's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, and though you might deny it, you are indeed a leader and legend of online learning. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thanks, Mark. Nice to talk to you. You can learn more about Liz and her work from our website. That concludes this episode. Be sure to go to our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com, to follow up on this episode's guest. You'll also find links to others whose ideas continue to inspire and teach online learning professionals. And you can subscribe to future interviews. If you know of a leader or legend we've not yet talked to, please do drop us a line at onlinelearninglegends at gmail.com.